0: You've heard me say before that I love to read history, and I read it because I enjoy it first and foremost, but I've also found over the years that it helps me to withdraw from the intensity of a current moment. It uh, helps me prevent what C.S. Lewis calls chronological snobbery, meaning that what's happening now, depending on its context, is, is always what's best or what's worst. And we always just think about the moment. So with that said, last night, about 14 hours ago, I opened up a book that I've been reading called The Story of Christianity. This sermon was prepared. It was written. I was done. I was ready to go. Then I started reading this book, written by Justo Gonzalez in 1984. It's about church history from the time of the apostles up until the Reformation. And I stopped in my tracks when reading about the election of a new pope in 1378. A time when there was a lot of tension in the church as to whether the pope should be loyal to France or to Italy and the Middle Ages, Europe, and the church was all very entangled and kind of confusing, but it was a tense time. And let me read you an excerpt that I came across last night. Tell me if this sounds familiar. The place where the conclave of cardinals was to meet in order to elect a new pope was invaded by a mob that would not leave until they had searched the entire building and made certain that there was no way for the cardinals to escape. All the while, the mob, both in the building and outside, clamored for the election of a Roman or at least of an Italian. Sound familiar? 1378. Church, there is nothing new under the sun. History as we know it is an ever-repeating cycle. And I share this not to say that what happened this past week doesn't matter or that we shouldn't care. In fact, if I kept reading, reading in this book that that moment led to a great divide in the Catholic Church. It was the first time that the same cardinals would elect two different popes it's led to what is known as the great schism in the Catholic Church. You can read about it. So my, rest, my message is not we don't need to care. My message is not even that everything from this point is going to get better, that that was the worst of it, because I don't know that. It might not, and honestly, it probably will not. But here's my point. Church, this is not new. It's horrid in many ways, but not new. And so the charge for us is the charge that the church has always had, and the one that we want to follow is, is this, pray for the moment, but then preach the word. Pastor Joe shepherded us in that prayer, pray for the moment. I appreciate you, brother, I appreciate you bringing to bear on us where our eyes should be fixed through this, not to forget it and neglect it, but to fix our eyes higher And now we preach the word, because no matter how much time I spent in my study this last week saying this is what I should give, I want my words that I think might be true, or or, or have conviction that they're true, the only thing that I know that I can do, that I know is true, is preach this word. And I think we'll find, as we do find each week, that this word is more relevant to our current moment than anything I could come up with. So we continue in our series going through the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, we are right at the beginning. We just began last week. And this sermon given by Jesus begins with the list of eight statements commonly referred to as the Beatitudes. It's the Latin word for blessed, the word that begins each statement. The Beatitudes are a description of the character of all believers, right? So before the Sermon on the Mount begins to tell us what we need to do as Christians, it first affirms who we are. Remember from last week, the Sermon on the Mount in a single line is think about who you are in Christ and live accordingly. And last Sunday, we spent all our time looking at the first line of the sermon in verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And this morning, we're going to look at the next four statements, verses 4 through 7. And just before I read them, ask yourself a question. Are these accurate descriptions of the church in America today? Is this the character of those who profess to be believers? So let's go Matthew 5, verses 4 through 7. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Mournful, meek, hungering for righteousness, merciful are these accurate descriptions of the, of the vast majority of professing Christians in America today honestly i'm not sure that it does but here's the point and to reiterate what joe prayed about that there may be a place there may even be good reason for christians for pastors for churches to be critical of professing believers at large in the church at large there might be a place for that but we should never start there before we point the finger we should raise the mirror In 1908, a major London newspaper called The Times sent a question out to its most notable authors and thinkers throughout England, and the question was this, what is wrong with the world? Wanted them to provide a written response to be published in the paper. And a man named G.K. Chesterton, a prominent author, theologian at the time, but most importantly, a believer in Jesus Christ, wrote back this, dear sir, regarding your article, what's wrong with the world? I am, sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. I'm sure Chesterton had a lot of thoughts, political reasons, social reasons, theological and church reasons as to why the world felt like something was wrong with it, but he started by taking an honest look at himself. And so, Grace Church, this morning of all mornings, let's start with us. Do these beatitudes describe your Christian character And witness. Does it describe mine? So let's take them through one at a time. Number one comfort for the mourners. Comfort for the mourners. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. One of the things to notice about the Beatitudes is that there's a very intentional order, there's an intentional progression of them, that they, they do not just stand alone. So first we saw, blessed are those who poor in spirit. That, that's primarily intellectual, right? The, the knowledge of our own spiritual poverty that's revealed to us by the Holy Spirit. And then this second one is the emotional counterpart or response to the first. The moment you know that you are poor in spirit, we mourn or lament not only because of that state, but for the reasons for it. Just like the first beatitude is primarily a a spiritual dimension, so too there is a spiritual dimension to Jesus saying, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn, meaning that um, just the physical act of mourning is not a virtue in and of itself. Jesus is not saying that for whatever reason you might mourn, you are blessed. He's not upholding all kinds of mourning, So if you are mourning over your favorite NFL team losing in the playoffs yesterday, and you are just wrecked by it, right? You won't talk to your family, you won't text your friends, you can't even get out of the bed in the morning. Jesus is not saying that you are blessed because you're in touch with your feelings and you're allowing yourself to mourn, no. Or if you're mourning because Netflix took the office off its platform, and what are you gonna do? Without your daily dose of Dwight Schrute, Jesus is not saying you were blessed because of that. But blessed are those who mourn over sin and brokenness. Those who mourn over spiritual poverty. When by God's grace you were shown to be poor in spirit. Remember last week—that's God's greatest grace on your life. That you are poor in spirit, you then mourn over the reasons why that is true. Sin that is done by you, sin that is done to you, and sin that is witnessed by you. Mourning over the reality of having a fallen nature in the midst of a fallen world. And again, we start with our own hearts. What is wrong with the world? I am. And this is so not our natural tendency with our sin, which is why we need the Spirit to reveal it to us, because our natural fallen tendency is to justify our actions and and thoughts and even to endorse our own sin and, and horrifically, in our worst moments, to even boast about our sin. And if it's not for the Holy Spirit, we would never mourn over sin in a way that leads to Him. Our natural state is to be far better at pointing out other people's failures and never acknowledging our own. I, I forget who it was a couple of years ago who said that that social media has become the place where we go to demand everybody else's repentance for their sins, but never go to confess our own. This was the natural state of King David. A man God chose and raised up to be the king of Israel, the chosen king. David, who abused his power to sleep with one of his general's wives, to get her pregnant, and then have her husband sent to the front lines where he would be killed in battle so that people would think that was his child and not David's. And he justified it to himself. And it was not until much later when a man named Nathan confronted David and gave him this hypothetical scenario of a man who sinned in a similar fashion. And King David says, That man deserves to die. To which Nathan said, You are that man, David. To which David broke down, mourned over his own sin, and said, I have sinned against the Lord. So it begins with lament over our own hearts. But it's not just that. It's also lament over the fallenness of the world, of the sin, again, that is done to you, that you were a victim of, or, or sin that is witnessed by you, that is pervasive all around us. This was the reason for Jesus' mourning. Jesus, the only person in the history of the world who did not lament personal sin, because he never sinned. And yet, he was a man prophesied in Isaiah 53 as a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Those of you who grew up in church, you know the answer to this trivia question. What is the shortest verse in the Bible? Two words. Jesus wept. Not over his own sin, and not only in context of the moment, over the death of his friend Lazarus, which caused him to weep, because you know what? He was about to raise Lazarus from the dead. But he wept over the fallen nature of a world where death happens, where cancer ravages bodies, where birth defects happen, where racism devalues image bearers because of skin color, And where the unborn are killed in the name of convenience. This is why he wept when the glory of God is replaced by the glory of man. And this is why Jesus came. Because comfort will only come to those who mourn over brokenness and not just demand that everybody else change, but for those who mourn over their own sin and repent of their own sin to receive forgiveness that only Jesus Christ can offer. You see, the the gospel says that only a man or woman could pay for sin, only a human could pay for sin, or only a human should pay for sin, and yet only God could pay for sin. So Jesus came as God in the flesh, a man born of a woman, to give his own life as a ransom for many. This is the only true comfort for the mourners. This is why Jesus say, blessed are those who mourn, because we still mourn and we still lament the fallenness that we see all around us, because sin is real and there are consequences. But because of Christ's work on the cross and his victory over the grave, church, sin is on the clock. There will be a day. When, as Paul writes in Romans 8, that creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of glory, and he said, so we have hope. A hope that leads to a serious joy in its people. Our our gatherings are not light and trivial, and yet they're not dark and mournful. They are of serious joy where we can mourn the brokenness of the world and yet have a joyful hope in the midst of the kingdom of God. Commentator Kent Hughes said powerfully, so often we laugh at the things we should weep over and weep over the things we should laugh at. You can tell a lot by a Christian by what they laugh about versus what they cry about. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Number two, the inheritance of the meek Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. We continue to see the progression here of the Beatitudes. Those who know they are poor in spirit and then mourn over the brokenness of sin. Then by God's grace and Christ's redemption, we are granted the strength to be meek. Jesus was the master of eye-opening one-liners. He said a lot, but did not require a lot of words for him to do it. Describing the kingdom of God in ways with, in ways that are the exact opposite of the kingdom of the world. The last thing people crave in their natural state in this world is meekness. And further, the last thing people will and think will inherit the earth to gain power and rule and have influence is meekness. In the world, it's the aggressive who survive. It's the go-getters who conquer. It's those who rule with an iron fist, take no prisoners. Perhaps, if you're honest, even as a believer, you see this statement about meekness and in the back of your mind, you think, "Ah, that sounds great, ideally, but this world is not ideal. Meekness doesn't work in the real world. It's a prime example where That is true if you are of the world. But if you are of God, poor in spirit, full in Christ, you're free to live by another truth. The truth where meekness is the greatest display of strength. The most compelling description of biblical meekness is the phrase strength under control. Strength under control blessed are those who show strength under control for they shall inherit the earth and there's really two ways to get this wrong right first meekness is not passivity it's not just being unmoved or uncaring whatever happens I'm just not I'm just gonna worry about myself I'm saved this ends well for me I don't care about anything around me that's not meekness That's cowardly weakness. But also, second, meekness is not overly domineering. It's not this fly-off-the-handle attitude that you got to be the loudest and the most controlling and the the overly passionate person in the room, enforcing your will. You often hear people kind of say, That being overly forceful or dominant, it's a a personality trait of theirs. They were kind of born with it. People will say, that's just who I am. But that's weakness trying to appear as strength. And it's part of a fallen nature due to sin. So if meekness is not dominance and it's not passivity, what is it? Strength under control. Meekness flows from a resilient trust in God that leads to confidence in his will and plans and then displays itself outwardly as strength under control. Trust to confidence to strength. For an example of this, we could look all over the Bible, all across church history, but we need to look no further than Jesus himself. The only time In the Bible, Jesus describes his own heart. It happens once in Matthew 11. And he uses two words. You know what the words are? Gentle and lowly. The word gentle is translated from the same Greek word here, meek. The day Jesus was crucified, he stood next to a man named Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor. In your mind's eye, Put yourself at the scene there, seeing these two men standing right next to each other. Can you see them? It's the picture of strength according to the kingdom of the world in Pilate, standing next to the picture of strength according to the kingdom of God in Jesus. Pilate shows his strength by ruling over others. Jesus shows his strength by giving himself for others. He's the perfect embodiment of strength under control. And in saying, blessed are the meek, he empowers us to follow him in walking that same path. Elsewhere in scripture, you know you'll find this word, meek and gentleness? You'll find it in Paul's list in a qualification to be an elder in the local church. Men who are not meek are not called to shepherd God's flock because they will either not handle things that need to be handled because they're too passive or they'll handle things in a forceful, controlling way, both of which are destructive to the church. You'll find this word also in the list of the fruit of the Spirit. To be Spirit-filled is to be meek. And as we grow in the maturity of faith, we ought to be growing in gentleness. Don't let the world's definition of strength and influence and distort God's definition. And church, if you're hearing this and you're feeling convicted right now, like I was when I was preparing, be rest assured, this is a prayer God loves to answer. Lord, help me grow in meekness. It's not our natural desire, but in his own words, it is what blesses. For the meek shall inherit the earth. And that blessing is both experienced now in believers and it will be experienced more fully in the age to come. Because when you really experience this now, you are free to be content in all circumstances to know that we have everything we need in Christ. And so we don't need to crave fame. We don't need to crave status. We don't need to crave the respect of the world. Our power is not defined by your, your, your following on social media or in your town or at your company. We are free because this world can't take from us that which is most true about us. And then, being co-heirs with Christ, the Bible tells us incredibly, I can't even explore this, but that we will rule with him for all of eternity. We will inherit the earth. That's number two. Let's keep going. Number three, satisfaction for the righteous. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Satisfied. Gotta do some work here because the word righteousness—that's used in various contexts in the Bible, most notably—and what I think we tend to think uh, first as Reformation people and Protestants is that the way the Apostle Paul uses the word righteousness in his letters, when he writes about the righteousness of God that is imputed to or credited to those who believe in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior righteousness as justification by faith, a doctrine that we hold closely and dearly. That you are declared righteous when you believe. It's not a process where God gives you a, a set amount of time where you might be saved in the future if you just act and behave well enough, but that at the moment you believe, you are declared righteous. It's courtroom language. You're innocent, forgiven, and it happens in a moment but that is not the way the word is used here. Jesus uses it in the context of practical righteousness or the hunger to live righteously, which comes as a result of the righteousness of God that we have been given. So the context of the word in what here is what we often associate with sanctification, the process of growing in Christ-likeness, conforming to the image of Jesus and the way we live. So, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for a growth in our knowledge of Christ. For growth in living righteously as a part of the kingdom of God. And so again, in our context now, put yourself in the first century. Put yourself in the shoes of the disciples who are hearing this. Because we do not understand hunger and thirst the way they would have. We say, I am starving. I'm so hungry when we have to wait an extra hour to eat dinner than normal. Our kids and my kids will often say, I'm starving. And I'm like, dude, you've eaten 17 times today. I'm pretty sure you've eaten more than, you ha- than the not eating. You're not starving. But first century, starvation and dehydration were never that far off of a reality. They would understand that desperate need for sustenance, the desperate need for clean water. It's this word picture that Jesus invokes of a holy discontentment, always wanting to grow, not in order to get approval from God because you've already been approved by God, but because you're approved by God, you're invited to grow, to hunger, much like a husband and wife in a healthy marriage will continue to pursue one another, A healthy husband and wife will continue to grow in their knowledge and affection for one another after the wedding date. So, too, a child of God will pursue God, the God of their salvation, after their conversion. This is the cycle of the Christian life. When you know Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit, it sparks a hunger to know him more, which in turn grows your affection for him more, which sparks further hunger, and that will go on and on until glory. He is a bottomless well that you will never get to the bottom of. This is what the Apostle Paul was getting at in his letter to the Philippians when he writes about the righteousness of God and becoming like Jesus. He writes in Philippians 3, Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, listen, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God and Christ Jesus. We hunger, we thirst, because God has made us his own. The staff is currently reading Nancy Guthrie's book. God does his best work with empty. We're one chapter in. We rotate each week who leads the discussion amongst the staff. But in the first chapter, she talks about how we God has made us with spiritual cravings. God has made you with cravings that we all are going to try to fill. We all are looking to fill the emptiness. The question is, what are you filling it with? And Nancy Guthrie, in the first chapter, writes this: "How's your diet?" How's your diet? What are you filling it with? Have you ever done a time audit on your week? We often think about this with money and budgeting, but have you ever audited your time? Do you know where your time goes? We have so many options, so many ways through things we can invest in with podcasts and and, and binge-watching shows and movies and sports and books and social media and on and on and on it goes, and work and sleep. When you do a time audit... You might answer the question, what are you trying to fill your cravings with? Church, are we hungering for the things that matter most? When Jesus said that he is the true water that satisfies, when he is the real bread, he wasn't kidding. May God grant us the grace to have the eyes to see what he sees, to have a heart for what breaks his heart in this world and hunger towards living righteously not only to overcome sin in our lives but to be advocates for those groups in our society who are often sinned against all right last one number four mercy for the merciful blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy Recall that all these beatitudes are describing the character of a true believer. And one commentator, I think rightly, calls this one, verse 7, the beatitude of liberation. The Greek word translated merciful means, quote, to give help to the wretched, and listen, to relieve the miserable. A person who extends mercy is a person who helps to relieve people of their misery. Not put people out of their misery, relieve people of their misery because we have received this mercy from God. He has liberated us from a miserable state of being away and far from him. This is the distinction between grace and mercy. You often see those words together. But... but They're related, but they're cousins, right? They're they're distinct. Grace is giving a gift that one does not deserve, mercy is not giving punishment that one does deserve. In Christ, we have been shown mercy and given grace. And so, in turn, those who receive the mercy of Christ become merciful themselves. We sang about it this morning. We've been liberated liberated from the shame and misery brought on by our own sin and brokenness. And so we are equipped to have compassion and be merciful toward others to relieve others of their misery. And this is not some of works-based righteousness. This is not um, where, where God tests you. And if you show mercy, then he'll show you mercy in the end. But rather... This is Jesus' statement that those who receive the mercy of God will show mercy as a result. To be merciful is to be in the business of doing active goodwill toward others. When we see someone in need, we feel compassion and then do mercy. And like all the Beatitudes, there's a physical and spiritual component to mercy. The physical component is to see need and address need. We saw this in our series in 1 John in the fall. 1 John 3, But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us love not in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Christians don't just feel sorry, they do sorry. Charles Spurgeon told the story of an English pastor in the 19th century who came upon a person whose horse had just been accidentally killed, and a crowd of onlookers gathered around to express words of sympathy to this person, and the pastor worked his way through the crowd, looked around, took off his hat, went into his pocket, took out some money and put it in, and said, "'I'm sorry, five pounds. How much are you sorry?' And pass it around to fill this man's need on the spot. So there's a physical component. But then more importantly, there is spiritual mercy. Granting forgiveness to others that have sinned against you. Mercy is an incredible thing. When you forgive someone, not only does it relieve them of the shame and misery of their sin, but in turn, it relieves you of your own bitterness towards them. We often withhold forgiveness from someone because we don't want to help them, especially if they never even apologized. So we don't want to let them off the hook. We don't want to relieve them of their guilt. But when we do that, when we withhold mercy and forgiveness, all we're doing is trapping ourselves. Beware of the religious person who holds grudges and never extends mercy to others. Beware of the person who demands repentance but then never gives forgiveness. I'm going to finish with a story about Corey Tenboom. Many of you know about her. She was a Dutch Christian who, along with her father and sister and other family members, helped many Jews escape from Nazis during World War II. And their family was eventually caught and sent to a concentration camp at Ravensbrück. I think I'm saying that right. After Ten Boom was released, she was later told that she was released due due to a clerical error And a week after she was released, all the women she was with were sent to the gas chambers. And then Ten Ten Boom recounted this story years later in her book, The Hiding Place. Listen to this. It was at a church service in Munich where I was talking about God's forgiveness of our sins. And it was then that I saw him a former SS man who had stood guard at the shower room door in the processing center at Ravensbrook. He was the first of our actual jailers that had seen since that time. And suddenly it was all there, the room full of mocking men, the heaps of clothing, my sister's pain-blanched face. He came up to me as the church was emptying, beaming and bowing, How grateful I am for your message, Fraulein, he said, to think that as you say, he has washed my sins away. His hand was thrust out to shake mine, and I, who had preached so often the need to forgive, kept my hand at my side. Even as the angry, vengeful thoughts boiled through me, I saw the sin of them. Jesus Christ had died for this man, Was I going to ask for more? Lord Jesus, I prayed, forgive me and help me to forgive him. I tried to smile. I struggled to raise my hand. I could not. I felt nothing. Not the slightest spark of warmth or charity. So again, I breathed a silent prayer. Jesus, I prayed, I cannot forgive him. Give me your forgiveness. And as I took his hand, the most incredible thing happened. From my shoulder along my arm and through my hand, a current seemed to pass from me to him while into my heart sprang a love for this stranger that almost overwhelmed me. Church, I asked at the beginning, do these Beatitudes describe the church in America today? I'm not sure they do. But Grace Church... Let's start here. Does this describe us? The message is not go try harder, but rather look higher. See what you've been given by his grace. This is who you are in him. This is our story in Christ. He extended his hand to forgive us so we can live accordingly and let his forgiveness flow through us. Let's pray. Father, it feels harder, if we're honest, more than ever, perhaps, to live out these beatitudes in the current time we're in, where outrage is the more convenient response. And yet, Father, we know all throughout your word and throughout church history that it is in the darkest places where light shines the brightest. Father, what an opportunity you have given us. What an exciting time to be the church, Father. Father, let it start with us. Let us not waste it. And let us live for your glory wherever this path leads. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, amen. Please stand as we sing and prepare to close with the Lord's Supper.